running boom of the 70s came during simpler, pre-internet times. A unique cast of characters riding that wave came of age. You never knew who would show up, and races became household names, attracting capacity fields year in and year out. Co-hosts Ron Galuli, John Gorman, and Grant Whitney, inspired by the first runner's reunion in 2019, speak with some of the characters of the era, share their stories, and where they are today. There's something for everyone in each installment of the Runner's Reunion Podcast. Good morning. Uh, today is Sunday, March 27th, another beautiful spring, early spring day here in Massachusetts. It's classic New England spring, 40 degrees, heavy wind. What a beautiful day. We are 22 days out from Boston, which means John Gorman um, is in the final uh training and preparation stages for his marathon. And Ron, I have to ask you a question before I get to an introduction of our guest. How have the negotiations between you and John gone? Uh, with John thinking about wearing his headset and a microphone so we can do a live uh, podcast with him running. Have those conversations with John gone anywhere? It's going well. It, the challenge is we have so many people that want to bid on the rights to that. Um, so we're, we're just trying to figure out who, who's going to be awarded that bid ultimately at the end, okay. yeah, the production rights and the broadcast rights. Um, so many people want to listen to it. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I, I, I can appreciate that. Um, it, it would be, it would be great if it can happen, but I guess, you know, money talks. So we'll have to, we'll have to see how that goes. Wait and see. Right. Wait and see. Yeah, we're exactly. Gonna try to, we're going to try to keep the podcast under six hours. Well, that so, actually might come into on the, that one. That hey. might actually come into the conversation. We talk about qualifying times and uh, just you know, think, yeah. just say yeah. the revenue from the yeah. commercials in a six hour. Uh, well, oh my god, yeah. yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I can retire. Well, yeah. So I have to well, tell you. So I had a great last twenty mile run yesterday. I went with my running group, the BRC. We ran from the north end of a common to the place called the Anchor Pub in Beverly, 20 mile run for breakfast and Bloody Marys. <laughs> we do it every year. You, you need that so, motivation. Yep, yep, so, but wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now is it 23 in a row, is that right? Uh, yes, this, no, this will be 22 in a row. Yeah, my 22 in a row. 34th total And Boston Marathon. And, and before I introduce our guest, um, we should note that John has been very coy. He's been speaking to the Boston Globe, or I should say the Boston Globe has been speaking to him. And he's kept Ron and me in the dark. So we don't know what kind of expose is going to appear on those, on those important pages. Uh, hopefully at some point, it's maybe kind of like the, you know, the great race or something like that. We'll find out after the fact, but, but you know, be that as it may. We'll um, see. What, yeah. buy, a, buy a globe. Buy a globe. There we go. Buy a globe go. and we'll find out. Exactly. Well, uh, not at all to take away from uh, our real pleasure to have a, a real iconic name in the New York, uh, New England running scene. And as I was, and as we look at this, um, it's a, with real great pleasure that we have a conversation, which may be more than one. We'll have to see how this goes uh, with Bob Hodge. And for those of you who don't know Bob, let's just give you a quick uh, thumbnail of his range as a runner. 408 mile, 845 two mile, 1355 5K, 28, 24, 10K, and a two 
10 marathon at Nike OTC back in 1979. He is a third place finisher at Boston in 22 days. And I want to ask Bob at some point uh, about, you know, does he get any chills or nerves or any uh, reflections as this time of year approaches? But Bob also has a, an, an incredible varied career. We've got world cross country on his resume, USA and USSR dual meets. My God, I, I don't recall the last time one of those happened. And a seven time Mount Washington road race victor. Uh, so suffice it to say, this is clearly a character totally in keeping with the spirit of what the Runner's Reunion and the Runner's Reunion podcast is all about. Bob Hodge, thank you for joining us on the Runner's Reunion podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Well, uh, for those of you who are just joining us as the podcast has just started, we just basically had 15 minutes of talk time and we wondered if we were even going to get to the meat of what we want to talk about. Uh, today. And uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Bob, and you'll see this in, in the kind of the notes of, of the pr- post-production, he's also the author, and I neglected to mention this, of Tales of the Times. And these are a series basically of essays that he's been keeping in his logs and all of that that were com- uh, compiled together in a book published in uh, 2019, would have been on everybody's bookshelf without a doubt before the pandemic. And so we're hoping to give it a little, with this podcast, a little additional boost uh, on that. And I know we'll be coming back uh, to have conversations about the book as part of this. But to help us get started, Bob, um, you are literally a son of Lowell. um, And we know that there is a connection or a theme, a parallel theme with Jack Kerouac in some fashion. But to help orient us, when you look at your family and your upbringing in Lowell, can you give us a sense of what the community was like in those early days? You were born in the mid fifties. So you are becoming cognizant as a kindergartner, say 1960. What was, what were your memories of the place? Yeah, you're right about the book. I mean, it is, it is a sort of a Lowell book. And, um, you know, obviously those formative years had a little impact on me. Uh, I never realized, you know, that Lowell was kind of a uh, a badass place or anything like that until I until I was, um, you know, out of high school and getting around a little bit. And when I told people I was from Lowell, they were like, "Whoa, Lowell!" You know, like I didn't at first. I didn't I didn't get why they were, uh, you know, maybe horrified or something. Uh, but um, you know, I. I it wasn't a bad place to grow up. Certainly, um, you know, it had its share of problems. Um, and, uh, you know, growing up by the North Common and having that as my front yard, grew up in a, you know, triple decker where people go out on the porch and, yet, you know, shout to their neighbors, hang the laundry out <laughs> to dry. Uh, you know, there's uh, something to be said for that. Uh, and uh, but anyway, I had a I had a really uh, good uh, experience growing up. My brothers were athletes. My older brother, eight year old brother Billy, was uh, a good ball player. Uh, he was a coach. He actually coached uh, the eighth acre uh, part of the city where I grew up in the acre youth organization. Uh, had a league. Uh, it was they called it Pony League. It was the next step up from Little League, and he coached a team. And he was only in his teens himself. Uh, so, um, and my brother was on the team, my brother, Mike, uh, my cousin, John, 
uh, and just everybody from the neighborhood. So, uh, you know, we, we grew up, that was my first love was baseball. And, um, but uh, quickly, uh, once I got into high school uh, and, and just went to my first, uh, my first cross country practice, which was kind of prompted by my uh, phys ed teacher. We were playing baseball, actually, and phys ed. We were outside playing baseball. And uh, I was stealing bases a lot. Every time I got on, I could steal the base. I never hit the ball. I, I'd always walk, you know, and then I get on and I'd steal second, steal third. And he said, you should go out for the track team. <laughs> so um, so that, that kind of prompted my going out. And I, I, loved, uh, I loved the running. I loved our coach, Mr. Lang, right from the beginning. Can you help me with one piece? So I took a look at that. There's a, a um, overhead view of Lowell in the 70s. And so I have an image of the North Common. It's a nice rectangle. It looks right. like it's bisected by a path, which kind of forms the outline on, yes. the, on the lower yeah. half of the baseball field. And you write in your book, um, in addition, obviously, to, to loving the game, <clears throat> You, you write something to the effect of, I found my true love running against my brother, Billy, after he <clears throat> gave me a large head start. And then you yeah. go on to talk about a boxer. Now, can, can you kind of uh, help us frame how that yeah. started, how often that happened, the boxer, and then again, dovetail well, it. In I, I think that any of us that have older siblings, this is kind of, you know, how it starts. All right. I mean, he's eight years older, so obviously I can't race him up the sidewalk across the common. But uh, if, if, he, if, if he gives me a head start, then I got some incentive. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that's a, a long-term memory. And uh, boxers are kind of uh, at the acre section of Lowell. The Lowell has something called the Golden Gloves. And um, it's a, in fact, it was just happening this month. And it was, a, uh, so there are a lot of boxers training there. And at the time, there was a boxer. His name was Bo James. He's actually a little bit in the movie The Fighter, the, the book with Mickey Ward. Uh, oh. Mickey Ward is actually from the Acre neighborhood of Lowell. He's about 10 years younger than me. But anyway, uh, Bo James would run around the North Common, the edge of it, which per perimeter of it, which is not, you know, maybe not quite a half a mile. And um, he'd run in army boots and in a warm-up suit. You know, he was like Zadopek. And he'd run in that stuff in, a, in the summertime. And uh, anyway, we would just run along behind him. And, you know, he'd ignore us for the most part. But every now and then he'd just turn around and throw a few jabs at us. And, uh, you know, I just remember that experience. Like, how long can we run with this guy? You know, and uh, a couple of us just hung in there. We'd run a couple of laps, you know, and... Uh, so I guess uh, that was the first uh, English, you know, first feeling for running as something I, I just, you know, was maybe bored to do or whatever. But it's but it's behind the first love that is ultimately going to disappoint you, meaning baseball. And then baseball, and then it comes you know, to. Uh, you know, I was okay in baseball. School. My brothers were much better athletes than I was, um, and we had a local uh, boys club, you know, where you do the uh, president's uh, fitness test. Um, you know, back from the Kennedy era, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they 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 could do everything. I was a little bit afraid of the rope climb. I was kind of scrawny, but mostly it was just because I was I was afraid of heights. Once I get up fairly high, I started <laughs> to get vertigo. I said, my brother said, "What's the problem? You know, you can climb that." 
I said, yeah, I can, but I get scared of the, I get scared <laughs> when I get up there. It's well, how, how, how high did they make you go? Uh, high enough. Pretty high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. That, I mean, you basically go up, you're supposed to go up to the ceiling. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's like, you look, you're up there. How do I get down? I can't get down. <laughs> I had no problem <laughs> with uh, running laps on the little board track though. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, so you've already, you've already alluded that it was actually a prompt, um, uh, you know, from the baseball coach because you were pesky and you were willing to be aggressive on the base path, uh, borrowing yeah. those, you know, baseball metaphors. Um, so did you, did you immediately seize on that idea? Oh, I should go out for track as a, I want to do it. Or is this guy telling me I'm not cut out to play baseball? And he's kind of gently giving me the, you know, the message. Honestly, uh, I didn't like baseball all that much. I just came to kind of be a chore, you know, mm -hmm. I wasn't really, uh, I, I was a pitcher for a long time, probably just because nobody else could even get the ball anywhere near the plate. And uh, when I, I, I was researching a little bit for some of the stories, I, I was researching in the Lowell Sun. And I've actually found a story where I pitched a shutout once. <laughs> so, but anyway, I was not that good at baseball. So to go out for the high school team, I probably wouldn't have even made the team anyway. And then from, like I said, from the first day of going to uh, practice and meeting the coach and everything. And uh, I think I think we did one day of practice, you know, went for a short run, two mile run or something. And then, um, you know, that weekend I were in, in the Catholic Memorial at Franklin Park. <laughs> so they had a freshman sophomore division back then. Uh, they probably still do. And, uh, and the course was like a mile and a half. And uh, that's actually the first chapter in my book is, uh, is about that experience. And then just being won over for the whole thing, you know, I got the uniform, you know, uh, uh, I, I was just a sap, you know, I was a sap for the sport right away. So Bob, uh, you know, I, I read the book, actually, I, I want to read it again. Um, and you have a unique ability uh, to remember events in, into incredible detail because um, I was reading one of the chapters and uh, I didn't realize it, but I'm like, oh, I, I was actually there when, when that happened yeah. and I couldn't really yeah. remember it. So it was probably the run to work at home. Yeah. Again, right? Yeah. Well, um, I do have a disclaimer in the front here. I don't know how many of you read Proust, but, um, and, and I think this is true for everybody is, um, is that remembrance of things past is not necessarily the remembrance of things as they were. Um, and I think that's true. If you and I were at the same event, I'm going to remember it differently than you are. We'll have some common things that we remember, but there'll be other things that you just didn't. Uh, Benji Durden, who was a runner from my era, actually made the uh, 1980 Olympic team in the marathon. He said, Bob, I want to I wanna write, but I can't remember anything like you. And I said, just start writing. Um, it's little things that kind of prompt is episodic memory where I hear a song, you know, obviously I like music. I have a soundtrack to my book. Okay. So if you're reading the book and you want this whole experience, then you should make a playlist from all the songs that I recommended and listen to it while you're reading the book. It's just a, that's just a suggestion. But um, anyway, that uh, there are, there are things that just prompt it. And the other thing is I've always been writing. 
I, um, I kept a running log from the very first days when I started running. I'll say within the year of starting running, I was keeping a running log and I still still do to this day. Was it, was it a gym fix one? times I did keep <laughs> journals. Just uh, I kept a journal for a year of uh, 1980 uh, when I thought there was going to be uh, an Olympic trials to run, you know, uh, and try to make an Olympic team. And, uh, and then there were a time when I traveled across the country with a friend and uh, kept a journal during that time. And, and so um, the stories in the book, they really are just separate tales. We, we kind of crammed them together chronologically somewhat to, to try to make the book out of it. But it wasn't written this way. These are all one-offs. And you could, if you read it, Ron, you could probably tell, <laughs> uh, you know, because uh, that's just the way it was done. So uh, I could be in a coffee shop and I just remember something or I talked to someone. There's actually a group on Facebook uh, from the Acre neighborhood of Lowell where I grew up. And uh, so I see photos and people have memories from the time. And uh, that, that prompts, um, you know, memories of what I was doing then. So uh, once you get, you know, once you get writing, uh, it just comes back. I don't know. That's, that's wonderful. And I have to ask, I'm going to paraphrase here, Bob. Um, you kind of note that, um, you know, you entered high school in 1969, which not ironically was the year that Jack Kerouac actually died. So there's yes. a bit of a parallel and, and, and a symmetry there. And you, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, you talk about how Zatapak, Ryan, and Bikila, uh soon replaced the, that, uh, the 67 Sox posters on your, right. you know, in, in, in your. The impossible uh, dream team. Yeah. Now, but what I'm struck with is here you are as a freshman in high school, 69, and how quickly you already had uh, connected with some of those greats, you know, Bikila yeah. and Zatapak and Ryan. Can, how did that, how did that come into your consciousness and how one did that my, impact you, yeah. I, I guess, running? One life. of my coaches in high school uh, had track and fit, had a track and field news copy with him. And uh, actually as he was leaving practice, he threw it in the garbage copy of track and field news. And I took it out of the garbage. I brought it home and read it. And I was, I was fascinated, you know, by all these. And um, I was actually making some money then. Well, you, read, you could read about my paper route, but later I made some real money um, uh, setting up for bingo at the St. Patrick's uh, Elementary School where I went to school. And so um, I started to buy, I got subscribed to Track and Field News. I started buying books on running, all the New Zealand greats. That's why I loved uh, the New Zealand and Arthur Lydiard so much because he was, you know, kind of, those were the successful athletes at the, at the world level, you know, when I was first introduced to the sport. So they just became my heroes. And, uh, and so I, I always was pretty well read about the sport. So that, that's how the Kila just fascinated me, uh, you know, the barefoot run in Rome and everything. And yeah. And there was some great photos of them. So one of them just ended up on my wall with, uh, with Jim Ryan and later Prefontaine and, you know, I th so I think it's funny, Bobby, that you you have a, such a you know fast forward connection with New Zealand, you know with Kevin Ryan's Kevin's family, yeah. and back then, you know New right. Zealand inspired you when you were yeah. a freshman in high school, 
And then, and then whatever, 40, 50 years later, you're hanging out with all these Kiwis. Yeah, I, when, I, when I first met Kevin, I started telling him how I'd read all the books in high school and everything. He was like, you're a Kiwi, mate. You know, he always, he's the one that got me to New Zealand finally uh, to run a marathon. Uh, so I was so happy that happened, you know, because I had just been deciding that I wasn't going to be uh, a shoe industry person <laughs> and gone back to school uh, at Lowell. So uh, when that happened, so yeah, that was a great trip. So we, before we leave high school, um, a quick lightning round for you, Bob. Okay. High school, late 60s-ish. Favorite training shoe, or what did you train in? You know, Chuck Taylors, uh, what were you running in? Uh, we had my first running shoe, other than uh, just Converse sneakers or whatever it was. Um, they sold these, um, they were called Tracksters. It was just a rubber outsole black, had a couple of stripes on it. Um, really hard rubber though. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We had a, a, a little board track when I was in high school, first couple of years, 110 yard track, <laughs> huge banks. You know, you had to run four laps to run a quarter. And, uh, and we trained on this thing. And, uh, but these shoes were actually pretty, pretty good for that track because you needed some grip. And, uh, yeah. So did you uh, race in those or, or between boards and then oh, yeah, did presumably outside? You did everything yeah. in those, everything. So you um, didn't race in spikes? No. I didn't get a pair of spikes. Maybe my uh, the end of my freshman year outdoors. Um, I, I actually had a pair of spikes, but they weren't very good. I think they were spot builds. I guess they were okay for the time, but we had a cinder track and everybody had spikes that were a half inch long. <laughs> so... Uh, but in cross country, of course, we ran at Franklin Park and uh, half the course was pavement. So as I look at your um, high school trajectory, uh, and by the way, I want to come back to Hajisan, how that moniker came up at some point. But, um, but in high school, you started off as a 458 miler as a freshman in high school. By the time you graduated and said- That wasn't official though, Grant. The 458, well, yeah, yeah. It, I'm going from the- that, That's course. also in my book, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Well, okay, okay. So, so we'll take all of this with the asterisks, right? Like Roger Maris. Mm -hmm. uh, so you finished high school with like a, a running a basically a, a two minute uh, eight eighty, a four twenty two mile, and nine seventeen two mile. So, so, you know, you were junior high school champion eight eighty. You were seventy one class mile champ indoors and out, seventh in the state cross country. Senior year. Uh, uh, Class A two mile champ indoor and outdoor fourth state cross country. So in other words, you you made your mark in high school. You were up there in high school. I was up there, yeah. Um, so high school is finishing. Help us navigate your thinking as to next steps. Unless there's something more about high school that you you feel like we want to. Yeah. Well, I think I address it a little bit in my book. My uh, attitude wasn't the best about you know. I mean, I think if I would have been serious uh, about school, I, I could have maybe gotten a, a, a scholarship to a, to a big time program. Mm -hmm. But um, I wasn't serious about 
about academics and my uh, my coaches kind of knew that I felt that way. So they, did, they didn't push um, for me to go to a bigger school. And actually my going to college at all at Johnson & Wales was really almost like an accident. I ran in a, a meet in Providence, an indoor meet at an armory down there. And uh, it was a last minute entrance. It was something called the Easterns that they used to have. And it used to be held in, Man in, in New York City. But that year there was something going on with the armory. So they had it in Providence. Matt Centrowitz was in the race, probably lapped me three times. The thing was I was running a personal best in that race. And they told us if we got a lap that we should drop out. So I got left, so I dropped out. And then my coach was yelling at me like, why'd you drop out? You're gonna run like 9.30. <laughs> and I said, well, I got left. And so he said, uh, so, you know, I was really dejected. I had never dropped out of a race in my life. And then Ted McLaughlin came up to me and said, how would you like to, to get a full ride to Johnson & Wales right here in the province? So the next thing you know, um, but I, I wasn't committed. Uh, and, uh, you know, in those days, about half of my friends went straight into some job, whether it was the trades or uh, local uh, companies, and they, they just went into job training. They, they, if, they, if they had got any schooling, it was more specialized to whatever they would be doing for a job. And then they did that job for 30, 40 years, and, you know, they got a pension, and they, that's how things were more like that. So the expectation wasn't that everyone goes to college. And uh, I really wasn't ready for college anyway. So um, Johnson & Wales, at the last, at the last minute, I, I, I just said, yeah, okay, I'll go, I'll go and see how it goes. I'll, I'll see how it goes. And, uh, you know, it was okay. It was a good experience, but uh, again, I wasn't ready. I just wasn't ready. Do you think, and, and if I go too far on this, please, you know, walk me back. Do you think any of, uh, you know, the sadness in your family ha had a role uh, to play at that point? I suppose. I suppose. Uh, I, it's really hard to say. Hmm. Um, yeah, it probably had something to do with my overall attitude about, you know, about life or whatever. Yeah. Was there anything at Johnson Wales that you were, yeah, it was kind of came by accident, so. Was there, when you got there, was there anything you were aspiring for? Was it any major you had or any career that you were looking at possibly at no. that point? <laughs> no. Not a librarian, right? I just wanted to run. And it was a way for me to continue running. Um, yep. I did, you know, uh, I, I think I mentioned in the book that my, my favorite course was typing. <laughs> uh, but I, I, did, I did take some courses that I was able to um, transfer the credits for to ULO when I started up on my undergraduate degree at ULO. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like it was a worthless trip and I learned a lot and I grew up a little bit, went on my first plane ride to, to Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, so, you know, it was overall good experience. And so we're just, talking, uh, yeah, we're talking uh, chronologically 1977. 74, 74. 74. Yeah. yeah, junior college all American. Uh, yeah, junior college. I was junior college. I was 14th in the uh, junior college cross country. I ran a 908 two mile. Yep. Uh, yep. I'm I'm checking your memory. Yes, that's exactly what I'm looking at on your. Yeah, on your, uh, I have my memory here too. <laughs> <laughs>
So then you're at Lowell, beginning roughly at age 19. Um, and, you know, there's some interesting accolades here. Uh, 1976, you're a second in the Division Three 5000. Uh, I'm guessing that's outdoor, probably. Uh, second Division Three. Well, that's, uh, hmm. That might have been uh, cross country. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm second sorry. in the cross country Division Three. Okay. And then. Uh, Which my teammate, Vinnie Fleming, had won the year before. Okay. At Franklin okay. Park. Yeah. And so you're at Lowell, it looks like, you know, age 75 through 76. Does that sound about right? Yeah, when I left Johnson & Wales, I got a job at Raytheon, uh, you know, big, big local company. And my father worked there, my brother worked there. My brother worked there for uh, 37 years. Um, so I worked there for a year. <laughs> and I said, wow, school, what was wrong with school? School was pretty good. <laughs> You know, my manager actually came to me one day and he said, what are you doing here? You know, you're 19, go back to school. And uh, so I did. I, I met George Davis, a coach at U Lowell. Uh, back then it was Lowell, still Lowell Tech. So I was a techie my first year. And uh, I was on a run in, uh, in the Lowell Drakett State Forest. And I came upon the race that Lowell was having, Lowell Tech versus Lowell State. And... Uh, I ran in the race as an unofficial entrant. <laughs> and anyway, he said, if you're interested in come back to school and come and talk to me. So eventually I did. So that's how I wound up in law. Of course, that didn't last, but you know, <laughs> eventually I did go back and finish my degree. It's all so in my book. <laughs> it's all in the book, but, yeah. but we're trying to, we're trying to tease out some of the, you know, some yeah, of the, but that's the, nice the basic uh, chronology of how things went. Yeah. But now, now, if we look at this in the context of the running boom, though, so we've had Munich in 72, you've had John Anderson, you've had Frank Shorter really, you know, um, you know, making the statement and things are starting to percolate. And now 75, you got Boston Billy, that first American record, and you're in the backyard. Uh, you know, here you are in Lowell, um, um, right. backyard of Boston, so to speak. And then a Greater Boston Track Club suddenly leaps into view. How did that whole process uh, come about? Well, it's uh, the first time I, I raced against uh, Bill Rogers. I was uh, at Johnson & Wales. I went home with a friend of mine for Thanksgiving. He invited me to come and then we were going to run in the Manchester race, uh, five miler, the Thanksgiving day road race. So I ended up finishing neck and neck with Bill. We was uh, fifth and sixth in the race. But I didn't know him, and he was nobody then. Uh, so, you know, a year, two years later, he finished third in the World Cross Country and, and won Boston. So I got to know Bill personally through Vinnie Fleming, who lived in Jamaica Plain, and uh, they were newly minted Greater Boston guys. Bill was a grad student at uh, Boston College. And um, anyway, I used to go down on weekends to visit Vinnie. And uh, we'd run with Bill. And um, so, yeah, that was, uh, you know, at a time when I was still running at Lowell and training and running also with Greater Boston. And, um, you know, I really loved the whole group and everything. And, um, you know, college to me, like the rah-rah, you know, college thing, I just never, that, I, that never, I never got into that at all. I wasn't. I wasn't, uh, that wasn't something that I um, <clears throat> aspired to. It, I just it wanted seems, to be a yeah. runner. I wanted to be the best runner I could. And, and, and the greater Boston seemed like the best avenue 
to get there. It, it seems at the time, Haji, that, you know, GBTC, um, with the number of runners they had, and in parallel to the running boom, that it was almost like a college team. And you had, you know, obviously legendary. Uh, yeah, some uh, of coach, us are still in college. So. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, we'd run with right. Boston in the summer. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah, so it was a unique time and a unique group to train with. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the week after I ran my personal best mile, um, I ran in my 408 in a dual meet or a tri meet at uh, Colby College. Uh, and uh, Vinnie Fleming has set the mile record at the school 411. And they were calling him Lowe's premier miler and all this stuff. So I get all pissed off. <laughs> so I went to this meet and I said, Coach, I want to run the mile. He goes, why? He said, you got to run the two mile too. I said, all right. I ran the mile. I was, uh, I was 408. The second place runner ran 425. And uh, I just wanted to, to get that record. Well, a week after that, I ran for Greater Boston 30K National Championship Road Race, Troy to Schenectady, New York. Um, so, you know, I never run. I mean, my longest run was barely, I probably run 20 miles once or twice in my life. So racing a 30K was, and I did well. I, I mean, I finished in the top 10. I think it was seventh or eighth or something like that. And we won the team title. So, yeah. Is that, is that when you kind of discovered that, yeah, you know, you, you did shorter races before that the race where you kind of discovered, hey, I have a, you know, the capacity yeah. to, to run real yeah. long distances. Yeah, know? I still thought running marathons was crazy, but, um, you know, back then we would take on any challenge, you know? So if Greater Boston guys had said, we got the national championship marathon coming up, I probably would have done that too, you know? I mean, my coach would have been like, you got to run against Brandeis next week. So you better be ready. <laughs> uh, One of the things that struck me, Bob, is that, um, again, because of the range of what you've done, uh, you, you know, in, in your career. And there was a comment either in the book or maybe it was in that um, that library uh, webinar uh, promoting the book. Um, you talked about you really wondered what you could do at those shorter distances, the mile, the 5K uh, and all of that. And then, you know, the marathon kind of then emerged. What do you think um, preempted you from really following that muse at those shorter distances um, or, well, or living that discovery? In New, living in New England, there's really not a lot of opportunities, I mean, to, to, to be a track runner, uh, at least back then and even now. Um, because, um, there was just, you know, Boston marathon kind of, you know, if you told anyone you were a runner, they would immediately ask who have you run a Boston marathon? Cause you weren't really a runner. <laughs> um, you know, most people didn't understand running at all to begin with, but, um, it, it was more difficult to be a track, uh, racer, especially later when I started to develop, I, you know, say I wanted to run the national championships. Uh, and they're in California. How am I going to get there? Is it out of pocket? You know, but if I want to run the Beta Breakers Road Race, if I have a reputation, they're going to pay me to come and run. And they're going to, you know, pay all my expenses, obviously. Uh, but in track, it doesn't work that way. So if you wanted to run in Europe, you know, you had to find someone that was going to get you there. You had to run some fast times. And the only way you ran fast times 
was to get into big races. For me, the 10,000 was really my best option. I could have run a better 5,000 and 10,000 and mile uh, if I focused on that. I, that's, I have a little regret for that, but not really, because you've got to go, you know, if you want to, if you want to stay, have some longevity in the sport, you got to go where the opportunities are. So they just aren't the same opportunities. If you want to run track, you got to really, you know, focus on that. And uh, it's just a little more difficult. Yeah, back back in the day, um, you had these loosely organized groups like GBTC. You didn't have anything quite as structured as like the the Bowerman Club, where that's right. They have a group of people focusing on track meets. They're, you know, facilitated entry yeah. into big meets. They set these meets up. Um, so yeah, yeah, it just you just didn't have the opportunities. Yeah, so I mean, Hanson's and you know, and Zap. I mean, they're some of the best things going, but I don't think I would have been a good uh, good thing for me. I, I liked I liked the looseness of the group. I don't know if I want to live. You know, you guys. With the with your with just all living in the same house with River Street and Cedar Street and everything, but that was really that was like Hanson's, right? Right. And y'all had y'all had to work and everything, uh, but um, and it wasn't as structured. I don't know if I would want someone telling me what to do every single day. You know, mm. um, Coach Squire is really perfect for a bunch of postgraduate runners. He was he was pretty ideal coach. And uh, just his whole style, you know, he was he was really kind of ahead of his time. And, uh, you know, a lot of coaches are sitting around reading scientific journals or something, but he was ahead of the science. He should have been writing the articles. I mean, it's all just simple, practical advice. And it was all kind of in the tradition of Lydia, you know, um, trial and error, because that's science. That is science, too. Right. Yeah, I, I do have to note that he, there's a book about a uh, coach out there now. It's called Born to Coach, and that's definitely a, a good read oh, as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, I've read that. Yeah. So Paul Clarici so, has done some yeoman's work with uh, writing those books, especially the one on Squires. Because as you know, yeah, he could be a hard guy to corral with so many stories and everything. Right. And I, I heard at the Boston Marathon Expo that he's supposed to, Coach Squires is supposed to make an appearance in uh and, and have some kind of uh, talk or something. Oh, good. Yeah, so um, Bobby, Bobby, I still remember we were all down the Cape Cod, the Cape Cod Marathon Relay we do every year. And uh, all, it was the night before, all standing around a bar talking and talking to Squires. And someone asked him, so who was the best athlete you ever coached? And you were standing like right behind him. He goes like this, points at you. Best athlete you ever coached. Huh? I owe him so, another check then. <laughs> I told him if he yeah. said that, yeah. yeah, yeah, I don't know no, why. Yeah, he, was... I, I think he always looked at me and Randy Thomas and Dick Mahoney like we we're all guys from Fitchburg and Weymouth and and Lowell. Um, so he he probably had a special place for us as opposed to, you know, Beardsley was great and him and Coach had a great relationship, but you know we were the local guys. You know he's a local guy so. Maybe, you know, I think you just said that because I just happened. I was, I was probably the only one who could remember at the time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's trying to butter me up. So, so um, you know, 
your greater Boston Track Club, 76 to 81. I mean, think about some of the accomplishments, uh, again, to kind of reframe. Um, you're third in Boston um, in uh, 79. And then uh, in the following year, you set your lifetime PR at the Nike OTC Marathon. And I don't think I've read anything about that race. Mm-hmm. Um, other than I know that, you know, it was an Olympic year. And mm-hmm. um, are there stories that come to mind about that effort and then the climate, knowing at some point that? Yeah. Well, um, in the fall of 79, Greater Boston won the, uh, the cross country nationals, AU nationals in North Carolina. And, and who was on been- that team? Who was on that team with you? Uh, Alberto ended up running for us, uh, Greater Boston. That was kind of his swan song. He was first. I was third. Uh, Greg Meyer was fourth. Danny Dillon was fifth. And Randy Thomas was 12th. And Pete Fitzinger was uh, also on our team. I believe he was 25th. And Bruce Bickford was also on our team. And uh, Mike Quinn, who ran at UMass. So we had a phenomenal team and we really had been aiming for a victory in that, uh, in that race. So that was a big one. And, and of course, finishing third in the national cross country, you know, that's, you know, other than uh, my 22nd place finish in the NCAA division one meet, uh, you know, those were, those were accomplishments. If you look at the, if you look at the fields from those races, especially the NCAA, actually the NCAA had more depth than the AAUs. The, the NCAA, you were, you were qualifying as a Division three athlete, right? Right. I got second in the, in the national meet, which was held in Cleveland in a snowstorm. <laughs> the guy that beat me there, Dale Kramer, he, uh, I finished a minute ahead of him in NCAA Division one. Wow. But anyway, you know, that's how racing goes. So, but uh, to get back to your question, Grant, the marathon, you know, when I finished third at Boston, all of a sudden I was ranked number seven in the country. And I was like, okay, the Olympic marathon trials are coming up. What do I do? So uh, I decided to go to Florida to train for a couple of months and uh, drove down there. And I trained with, uh, I trained some with Tom Fleming and Bill Rogers, Kirk Pfeffer, and uh, other runners who would just come in, you know, train for a few days, train for a week, come in for a race, uh, international runners. So I was really uh, preparing. And of course, while we were down there, uh, talk of the boycott got started. And, um, you know, we still thought that there would still be a trial. I mean, in the end, at the end of the day, you know, I didn't want to run the trial because uh, I didn't want to be complicit with because I didn't agree. I thought that the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, kind of bailed out and uh, they didn't even really, really put up a fight to go to Moscow. And uh, not that it would have been an easy thing, but, you know, the British team went and uh, they're our allies and they didn't want. It's so ironic looking at history, you know, from from today (laughs) to see how and why that happened. But anyway. We all know that uh, that's when I lost my kind of, you know, youthful innocence about the Olympics and having putting everything on a pedestal and everything. Not that I was going to make the team, but uh, I mean, 
I think I would have had a, a chance, a decent chance making a team. That's all, you could, yeah. that's all you could ask for, really. So then in the fall, I ran, you know, 210.59, uh, finished second to Dick Quacks, you know, one of my heroes who recently passed a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was actually very upset about after that race because I thought I should have beat Dick Quacks. <laughs> you know, here's one of the stars of the European track circuit. And I watched him run in Montreal. I was in Montreal watching Bill Rogers run the marathon and I uh, coached Squires and, and Bill Rogers got us tickets. And, uh, and here I am racing him four years later and I'm thinking, I should have beat that guy. Like, you know, uh, I had no business even being in the same race with the guy, let alone. But, you know, that's, uh, that's what keeps you motivated and everything. And it, of course it was in Eugene, Jack um, yep. Town. So that was kind of cool, finished in Haywood Field. I'd like to follow up with something that literally just came out of the globe today. And it kind of harkens back to your baseball interest at the time. Um, they're talking about the Red Sox and spring training now. And they're talking about the, the uh, clubhouse debate and uh, that always happens around this year with March Madness. And they're talking about St. Pete's, you know, the, this Wonderkin, um, you know, coming up uh, and, and, and doing incredibly well. And um, Alex Cora, the current manager, talks about how everybody's rooting for a sporting underdog. That that's one of the quintessential uh, parts of being an athlete, being a, a sport, whether it's individual or team. Have you ever kind of thought about that, Bob? Or, and how did it, does that underdog mentality? Do you see that in you over, um, you know, coming from your roots all the way through some of those decisions? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, sometimes people' perception of you as an athlete isn't really isn't reality, you know? I mean, when I finished third at Boston, my best, uh, I had only run one prior marathon, you know, raced one prior marathon. I had run 228 in the 77 Boston, finished 46th. So it looked like, okay, this guy's run 228. He's running two, you know, running 212. That's, but I'd really made a lot of progress. Uh, I had been racing well, I had run, uh, 60 minutes and change for a 20K uh, just months before Boston. So people don't, you know, the average person, uh, even the just casual fan wouldn't know about those performances. So they would think this is out of the blue or something. I mean, a lot of the time, someone who's the underdog, I mean, it's different in team sports, I think, than, uh, than marathon racing for sure. Because um, in a marathon race, it truly is, you know, there's a lot of people. I mean, it's narrow now just because of the way that races are run. You know, there's only a X amount of elite runners running in a race. I won't get it. I won't even get started on talking about, you know, the governance of the sport or the, or the marathon majors because I'm kind of disgusted with the whole thing. Uh, but anyway, as far as underdog, um, yeah, um, I would be... Uh, I definitely was a, considered an underdog in a lot of my races and performed. The thing was, I ran a lot of races, we all did back then, and I lost a lot of races to people that I would normally beat 
but then I would get to a big race and I would beat a lot of people that I wouldn't normally beat because in my mind, that's, that's, I was pointing for something. Those other races didn't matter so much. They were just little stepping stones. Yeah, it's amazing the, the difference. Uh, now you look at the you know, club like Bowerman, they very rarely race, whereas you were out there two, three times a month, it seemed. I think it's too bad that they don't race more often. Um, how often did Galen Rupp race? Three times a year? I mean, it's not really healthy for the sport. Right. We need to have like a league, professional league like golf, like tennis. And you have the athletes have to do some some kind of qualification process to be in that league. You get your card. It's like you get your card, you're in the PGA, and then you can compete in these events. Okay. It's uh, not so much Wild Wild West like it is now. Uh, so, you know, what's interesting it, it seems to me is that we go from high school where you still have plenty of dual meets you still have plenty of invitationals and then you move to college and it doesn't matter if it's division three or division one you are starting to see that um you know to to that effort you, you a cross-country season might be three races max from you know september to november and then to your point about you know that that next step and there there's a real dichotomy and a disconnect in some ways yeah uh, certainly from folks of our era in, in terms of yeah, what those really like obviously i was all for our runners being paid for their efforts in professional running but it never really developed the way that i that i thought thought it would mm -hmm. and uh now participation especially in marathons is 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 seems to be the goal and I think it's great that lots of people, 30,000 people can run in a race, but it doesn't really interest me at all. I'm a fan. I want to see the top runners race. I want to see them, you know, you know I want to see that be the focus. And mm -hmm. I really think that uh, the media and the television coverage is, is, is not good. <laughs> uh, and uh, if they presented the sport in a, in a reasonable way, if they put some effort into it, it, more people would understand, you know, true uh, racing. And, and, you know, uh, I just don't think we do have ever really tried. It's never really been given an opportunity. When they cover the Boston Marathon, they're not covering a race. You know, that is, that is the least of what they're covering. It's just a curiosity on television. Uh, it's like a big parade. And uh, it's good. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I mean, people are getting healthy. They're out there running. But it, it just doesn't uh, interest me. Yeah, if you don't have like a background story of who you're raising money for, or you right. know, this who you're running for, there's really no interest in the media these days. Well, in most uh, in pro sports, mostly the they raise lots of money for charity. I mean, tennis and golf raise tons of money for charity, but they do it at charity events. They don't have their event overtaken by the charity. Which is so. I think that's where the governance of the sport uh, needs to come in. And under the current system, which was which was designed under an amateur system, uh, you're never going to get that. That has to be the USA track and field has to be completely revamped. You could just do away with it, or even just start a whole professional league. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not thinking that this is going to happen. <laughs> and a lot of people are making a lot of money 
um, on the sport, but it's not only a 10th of 1% of the athletes can even barely make a living as an athlete. So, you know, you don't see the depth in running. Everybody used to be, everybody used to do everything they could to run as fast as they could. That's a sport. Uh, when you stop caring about that, then it becomes something else. I'm not saying that's bad, but you have plenty of avenues to just run a marathon. If you want to race a marathon, maybe you should do it so, in Boston. It should be very limited to the top runners. And if you want to get better, then you can run Boston. That's how it used to work. But technology kind of changed that. The only well, reason they, they had those fast qualifying times was because they couldn't handle that many runners. Plus, the entry fee was like 10 bucks. So they weren't making, you know, it wasn't a money-making thing like it is now. Anyway. Well, I would say, uh, and as no surprise to John or to Ron, we kind of anticipated that we uh, might need more than one conversation. Since we've only gotten to 1980, uh, there's still plenty uh, of room to go. And uh, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, well, all of us are laughing because we don't believe that for a minute. But uh, I think it's fair to say this is probably as good a stopping spot as any uh, at present. And with your permission and indulgence, Bob, we would look forward to uh, getting to part two, if you will, uh, moving beyond the disappointment of 1980 and, and perhaps exploring more about the evolution, the commercialization, uh, some of these themes, uh, and certainly as your career intersected with them on another upcoming episode of the Runner's Reunion podcast. For John Maybe Gorman. you should put it out for a vote. <laughs> oh, we're I not at all democratic. Like so everyone yeah. who listens to the podcast says, do you want a volume two or did you have enough? <laughs> Yeah, I think like could, the Godfather. Yeah. The Godfather Part Two is better. You know, it could be like the Hajisan Part Two. Oh, much better! It's the best sequel I've ever well, listened to. Well, you know? you, you, you've made the point. I haven't even asked, been able to ask that question. So there's no question now. We have to do a Part Two. Mm-hmm. So uh, for on behalf of John Gorman and Ron Galuli, I'm Grant Whitney. Looking forward to the next installment of our conversation with Bob Hodge and looking forward to exploring more about the era and the characters that made it on the Runner's Reunion podcast. Thanks for joining us, and we will be back with you soon.